The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In the early years of the 20th century, the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy was famous all over the world. So famous that people from all different countries wrote him letters, and sometimes he wrote back. In 1908, he wrote this to a younger man who was writing from India, quote, What are wanted for the Indian as for the Englishman, the Frenchman, the German, and the Russian are not constitutions and revolutions, nor all sorts of conferences and congresses, nor the many ingenious devices for submarine navigation and aerial navigation, nor powerful explosives, nor all sorts of conveniences to add to the enjoyment of the rich ruling classes, nor new schools and universities with innumerable faculties of science, nor an augmentation of papers and books, nor gramophones and cinematographs, nor those childish and for the most part corrupt stupidities termed art. But one thing only is needful, the knowledge of the simple and clear truth which finds place in every soul that is not stupefied by religious and scientific superstitions, the truth that for our life one law is valid, the law of love, which brings the highest happiness to every individual as well as to all mankind. Free your minds from those overgrown, mountainous imbecilities which hinder your recognition of it, and at once the truth will emerge from amid the pseudo-religious nonsense that has been smothering it, the indubitable, eternal truth inherent in man, which is one and the same in all the great religions of the world. End quote. A little over a year later, in his dying days, Tolstoy wrote to the same man the following, quote, The longer I live, especially now when I clearly feel the approach of death, the more I feel moved to express what I feel more strongly than anything else, and what in my opinion is of immense importance, namely, what we call the renunciation of all opposition by force, which really simply means the doctrine of the law of love, unperverted by sophistries. Love, or in other words, the striving of men's souls towards unity, and the submissive behavior to one another that results therefrom represents the highest and indeed the only law of life, as every man knows and feels in the depths of his heart, and as we see most clearly in children, and knows until he becomes involved in the lying net of worldly thoughts. Any employment of force is incompatible with love. End quote. All you need is love, one might say. You can change the world with it. The Beatles thought that, certainly. It's peace and love, Ringo has said. That whole Beatle thing, all the mania, all the creativity, all the legend and all the lore, all the successes and the breakup too. It was all about peace and love. That's what made Ringo the proudest. You can change the world with love. It's natural to humans, Tolstoy thought, natural to love one another, the cruelty, the torture, the war that was about to break out. 
All that was unnatural. But love is fundamental. It's in us to love. Some might disagree. They might say, look at the world. It looks like cruelty is part of us too. Adam loved, Eve loved, and then there was Cain. It didn't take long for us to start slaughtering one another, even our brethren. And it doesn't take long for countries and societies and tribes and families to take up arms and feud and fight and undermine and kill. It happens everywhere. But there is love everywhere too, and countries and people who love, that express love toward one another, are in a sense more free. More free to feel joy, to feel the pleasures of generosity, to empathize, to care. And it starts within the heart of each individual. Maybe an individual who has gone to India, like the Beatles did. Maybe one who sings or lets song fill their hearts. It all comes back to love. Do we have anything better in us than that? Can love change the world? We might ask the recipient of those letters from Leo Tolstoy. His name was Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi. He was supposed to be on the cover of Sgt. Pepper. In fact, he was there at the Beatles' request until they were informed that if his image was on the album cover, the album could not be printed in India out of respect. But Gandhi is a connector of sorts for us today, a bridge from Tolstoy to the Beatles, a bridge that rises and descends like a rainbow. It's peace and it's love. We will have more on Tolstoy and some thoughts on the Beatles today on the History of Literature. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, your host with the most. Oh, what am I saying? The most what? I just said that because it rhymed. The host with the with the toast. I might as well have said that. Speaking of toast, have you seen the Beatles documentary yet? The new one, the Get Back documentary? Peter Jackson. It's absolutely incredible. You are in the studio with them right there as they talk and laugh and create. Play their instruments and sing with those voices. It's heaven. They argue, they struggle, they triumph. It's like walking into a dream. And if you're like me, a lifelong fan and Beatles obsessive, it's like a dream you didn't think would ever come true, but it has. It's so much fun. And it's given me a few thoughts about narratives and Legends and the Beatles Breakup, which we're going to get to. And I promise you, it's not going to be things you've heard a million times already. It's a special Jack Wilson take on this stuff. And it's about literature, too, about the stories we tell and the power of narrative. So even if you don't like the Beatles much, or if you're tired of them, or you haven't seen the documentary, not to worry. This conversation will work for you as well, because I am the host with the most. (laughs) (laughs) The host with the toast. That's where I was going with this. There are these little moments in the documentary where the Beatles are working away, jamming, breathing life into snippets of songs, staring at one another as their minds meld, and then 
peel away from one another and the songs burst forth, individuals, but also the group. You really do see all this happening. It's absolutely incredible to watch. And then they take a break because someone walks in with a pot of tea or a little dish with a little stand that holds triangles of toast. And I think, yes, there it is. The toast. The toast has arrived. I might not be able to tune a guitar, let alone play one, or the piano either, but I can eat toast. There's my connection to the Beatles. I can wear clothes like they do and drink tea like them, and there you have it. I can make and enjoy a little dish of toast, and I can love. I might not be the host with the most, but I can do my best. The host with the almost. Moving on. Let's bring out our guest today. You know him. You love him. He's Mike Palindrome. It's been a while since Mike has been here. Mike has been swamped, but he still reads away in those 10-page chunks. Finds time to do that. Good old Mike. We're going to talk about Plath and Hughes soon with Mike. We have, I think, three episodes on Sylvia Plath coming up on Plath and Plath-adjacent topics. And really, you could do a whole podcast just on Sylvia Plath. Even though she didn't live long, unfortunately, she was so intelligent, so fiercely brilliant that there's plenty there to discuss. So Mike is going to come on first, not to talk about Plath and Hughes today, but to tell us about this Twitter online thing he has going. He and a bunch of tweeters... Speaking of Twitter, by the way, I got a message from a woman in Cyprus who's been enjoying the show, and she asked for reading recommendations, and she said, maybe something light and fun for the holidays. And so I wanted to tell you all about something I did recently on Twitter, which is to put all the episodes with guests and links to all their books, all the guests we've had in 2021, onto my Twitter feed. It's the pinned tweet at the top, which you can find at the Jack Wilson, that's Jack with an E. V with an E, of course, Jack with an E, not of course. And Wilson, just with all the usual letters. No E's even trying to get into that one. No E's knocking on the Wilson door, which is just fine with me. Stay away, E's. I see what you do when you take charge. Turning live into evil. Where were we? Toast? We did toast. Twitter? That's right. Light and fun on Twitter. Maybe uh, the recommendations are there. Maybe Disha Filia and her secret lives of church ladies. Or Lori Frankel. That's pretty fun. That would be fun too, her books. And I like the fun of learning, which expands to pretty much all the books we've had. Brain Food, all those books for the brain. They're on Twitter. So check those out and come back here for Toast and Tea and Tolstoy. Mike Palindrome next, and then the Beatles. Where else, people? Where, do you, where else do you get this kind of mashup? Mike Palindrome, Tolstoy, and the Beatles. After this. Hey, 
grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club and a frequent guest here on the podcast, although Mike has been doing some moonlighting for the past couple of years. He's been participating in and running some online book clubs of people who read classic works and comment via Twitter. We'll learn more about that today. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So, Mike, what are you currently reading on Twitter? Uh, we just finished up The Magic Mountain. Mm, okay. Your old favorite. <laughs> and we also finished up a slow reread of Just Swan's Way uh-huh. by Proust, okay. um, volume one. Yeah. And we're doing War and Peace again. Okay. And we're going to start Ulysses on Thanksgiving. Oh, nice. Okay. So, so how do listeners find it? They use the hashtags? Well, I've changed my profile on Twitter so that the hashtags are right on my profile. So if you go to uh, Literature SC mm-hmm. on Twitter, okay, you can find it. But okay. uh, yeah, I, tr- I try to put the author's name and together. But with Ulysses, we put Ulysses together because there's so oh, many right. joys Right. In fact, right. a Twitter friend of mine is doing uh, a Finnegan's Wake oh, right. uh, reading one page a day starting <laughs> January 1st. Right. So I <laughs> plan to do that for a couple of years. So what can people expect from the process if they join one of the ones that you're doing? They read 10 or 10 or 12 pages a day? Oh, I slowed it down. Oh. I used to do 12. I probably do 10 and there are a couple of days where I do five. Uh-huh. Just because I acknowledge that I, I find that people's reading habits, if you're not reading 25 pages or 30 pages of a book a day, you're probably reading more than one book. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like a not such a sweet spot reading 15 pages a day. Like 10 seems to be like a uh, a very good um, amount uh, that you can chat about. Right. So I, I tr- I'm aiming for 10 pages a day with some breaks, uh, short days to, for them to, for people to catch up. Okay, so you're learning from your past experience how people 
like to do this without feeling like they have to get kicked out of the project because they miss a day or two or something. It's hard to catch up. Now, there's been a new development, which is the first one you did was a Tolstoy Together sponsored by a public space in Brooklyn. And that one was headed up by author Yi Yoon Lee. There's now an anthology about the project, and you are one of the contributors. So what did you write about? It was just my various tweets throughout the course of oh, reading the book. Okay. Yeah. So they just compiled and, it from that. Yeah, they curated <laughs> the thousands of tweets. And so they're probably... I don't know, 50 or so other contributors yeah. that had their tweets selected. And then they asked six writers to write short essays. And it, it's a beautiful anthology. It's so well done mm. because normally I don't like reading guides. I mean, I can just count on my hand the number of reading guides I've actually used. Mm -hmm. But I feel like this reading guide, the idea behind it is to just add more background to what you're enjoying rather than kind of spoon feeding you analyses yeah yeah which drives me crazy i mean i'm reading a i know a reading guy i don't want to name it but it's to magic mountain and i'm reading it and i'm just thinking like you're kind of making me hate the book <laughs> i know i know and kind of turning me off of book clubs yeah so like this Tulsa anthology has like a poem by adrian rich about Tolstoy. It has an essay about like Tolstoy and Rachmaninoff versus Dostoevsky mm. and, you know, other Russian composers. They really put some thought into making this something you actually want to look at mm -hmm. rather than feel like, oh, I'm going to miss out if I don't look at this. Yeah, right. It's really up to you how much you want to get out of it. And I I find that you, you and Lee's um, tweets you know the first time around i thought they were brilliant the second time around i just think you know here's a person i think she's read war and peace 10 times yeah and the freshness of her voice in the tweets means she just shows how much she loves it oh. it's you know it's not like you know nothing against college professors but professors who've read you know a book 10 times and they come to the course not really looking for anything new and just sort of like teaching this brilliant analysis these analyses and these lectures and you just sort of feel like in their own weird way they're so smart but they're still kind of mailing it in. Mm -hmm. so right as if uh it doesn't matter to them in a way that it matters to you and lee yeah and i think you know a lot of it is because you know i she's a writer mm -hmm. and you know as as writing teachers have told me you you never quite succeed. Hmm. You always have that next book. You always have that, you know, I should have done this better. There's, there's that famous anecdote where Martin Amos was at a dinner party and he saw one of his books and he took it out and started editing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and the host was like, that's my copy. Why are you writing it? <laughs> he was like, yeah, but the opening, I, I just think, you, you know, it should be like this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think there's something about a writer and the public spaces, other book clubs, they've always had a writer hosting. Well, not always, but they they often have a writer hosting it. And I just think you can really sense their struggle to be as good as this book. Mm, right. There's this like inner struggle that's going on in addition to just loving the book. Right. Right. Because it's also Tolstoy is so I've mentioned this a few times, but 
Nabokov pointed this out to me in his essay. Tolstoy is so good at things like time. Yeah. The passage of time and the pace and just getting that in a way that feels so right, that the the right amount of time is passing as you're reading it. And that's the kind of thing, I mean, it's it's almost like a magic trick that it's yeah. really hard to look at it. A lot of times you could look at a you could look at a Martin Amos, for example, and kind of imitate his style. You might not be as good, you might not be as smart, you might not have the command of language he does, but you could read a sentence of his and think, oh, I could try to write a sentence like that. But if you're yeah. looking at something like, that you admire and it's something as difficult to put your finger on as how does he get these events to move and give them the space that they need to move through time, uh, it's yeah. really hard to look at a book like that and not just be overwhelmed by the genius behind it. This is my third time reading War and Peace, <laughs> and I am noticing these rhythms that I think, you know, you, it's hard to notice the first time you're reading it. The first time you're just trying to get through it, mm -hmm. you know, and the second time I think you're like, what, well, well, what did I remember? You know, yeah, right. And are, what did I love? And do I still love it? The third time is almost just like this strange, like, this is like me, like this is, this book is like now a part of me and what real holistic, almost like personality stuff am I noticing? Mm. So it's, yeah. it, it's been a lot of fun. I just ordered another copy, another translation, because I have the PNV, I have the Briggs and the uh, Rosemary Edmonds. I just ordered the mod. Yeah. So right. my next read is going to be the mod. Right. Okay. So when you use, the way you're using this Twitter, yeah. is it kind of like when someone goes out and they buy a new pair of running shoes and they join a gym and they, they commit themselves to exercise in the hopes that, okay, this is going to make me do it and this will keep me on track and I want to read Tolstoy this year. And so if I do this Tolstoy together, that will be my support network, the way that a, a friends uh -huh. at the gym might be. Or is it that you're energized by knowing that you're going to be part of a community of people and you'll have these thoughts that you get to share and that you get to read from them? I think it's probably more the latter. Yeah. I, I think that the, the freedom of commenting as little as you want, as much as you want, reading mm. as much as you want. Although someone, one of my Twitter followers was pointing out that there's like a good size for a Twitter book club and maybe it's like less than a hundred. Mm. Certainly it's good to have at least like 25, 30. Yeah. But when you have like you know, thousand readers, it's tough. You don't get to know the personalities of the commenters. Yeah. And then there's so many tweets. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. But I've gotten used to it. I mean, I know which people I really want to like check on. And yeah, I think the most rewarding tweets are the ones where they're like replies back and forth. Yeah. Where people are like, well, this reminded me of this. This reminded me of that. Well, I use Twitter to follow the news because I have five or six people who I trust their opinion or I like their opinion or they just I find something intriguing about what they do. And so I'll uh, some event will happen and I'll check in on them and I'll think, oh, I know so and so is going to be all over this. Or I wonder if this is going to change so and so's mind about X or or Y. Right. It would be pretty fun, I would imagine, to be doing that, not just on, you know, the latest bombing or the latest ins and outs of 
congressional legislation or something, but to be doing it with, here's a moment with Natasha, I'm going to see yeah. what my favorite Twitter commenters said about it. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the, the Magic Mountain read was one of my favorites because so many people were really engrossed by yeah. the, the characters. And it was almost like, you know, people were dueling with like, this is my favorite character. This is my favorite chapter. So it was really, it kind of was eye-opening because sometimes I just think like, you know, shouldn't I be working on my novel mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of <laughs> scrolling through <laughs> tweets? But now I'm starting to think it's kind of the preparatory time I take it, where in the past maybe I'd watch like a soccer highlight. Mm-hmm. And now I just, I, I've replaced other things in my life with Twitter, as bizarre as that sounds. Yeah. Do you feel like this is a fad or a response to the pandemic, or do you think it's something you and others will be doing for years to come? I think it definitely exploded, you know, positively because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it, it'll continue, although I am part of a in-person book club. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that the it, it's hard to capture the way the dynamics and the focus can change in person versus like on Twitter, because on Twitter, it's very much like you're kind of yelling into the darkness. Yeah. And then right. maybe someone yells back, but you know, usually nobody does and that's okay. So that's the system. Yeah. Well, yeah. authors will say that too. They'll be on social media or they'll be on a podcast and they maybe will be reaching thousands or ten- tens of thousands of listeners that way, but they still want to go to the library and talk to eight people, you know, there's just no substitute for that face-to-face in-person contact. I mean, it can be both because it's hard. Like I'm in a live book club and like, I would love to read the memoirs of Hadrian, but it's like kind of hard to force people to read that kind of book because Hmm. some people look at, probably a lot of people look at a book club as a diversion slash, you know, social thing Mm -hmm. you know the joke at some of these book clubs that my friends are in is how long before people just start gossiping about life (laughs) right (laughs) and is that measured by amount of time we've talked about the book or number of glasses of wine that would be the one (laughs) yeah it's the one it's the wine meter so in my book club we have a couple of like regulators who are just like yeah let's just let's just go back to the book oh and I, I do think you need somebody like that because it's almost like when you practice a foreign language and you've done this where you're practicing the foreign language and then someone wants to speak in English yeah. and then it just totally breaks down. Right. Then <laughs> then you don't want to go back and feel so good, feel so yeah. relaxed and easy. Yeah. Okay. Well, as always, Mike, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack.
Okay, so here we go. This is all about the Beatles, my heroes. Maybe you're heroes too, or maybe they're not. Maybe you don't see what all the fuss is about. Maybe you like a different band or don't really like music much or or not are not into rock music or classics or whatever you call it, classic rock. I get it. I hear you, but let me make the case for my own immersion. There's something folkloric about these guys, these four. First of all, they were hugely famous and popular in their day. And secondly, they were also the most artistically accomplished of their peers. It's very rare to have this twofer. For this to be the case, most of the time you get one or the other. You get fame and and popularity, or you get the artistic accomplishment. You rarely get both. In this case, you did. Nobody was putting out that much music at that high of quality, and nobody in the world of music was that famous at that time. They were, they were that famous not just in the world of music. They were that famous in the world of world, in the whole world, the world, period. Very few people were in their category, and it all happened almost overnight. We're looking at their last album, not their last recorded, that was Abbey Road, but their last released album. We're talking about the recording of that album today, thanks to the release of the new Get Back documentary, which takes you through something like seven or eight hours of footage of them in the studios during this period. This was at the end, is my point. The end of their run, almost the very end of what we know as the Beatles, and George Harrison is 25 years old. Not even 26. And yet behind him, behind all of them, are absolutely legendary moments. The moment when John met Paul, when they invited George into the group, the Cavern Club, Hamburg, Stu Sutcliffe dying, Brian Epstein kicking out Pete to be replaced by Ringo, dropping the leather and putting on the suits, the failed recording sessions meeting the audition, meeting George Martin when he asks them if there's anything they don't like, and George Harrison says, I don't like your tie. The one-day recording of their first album, Please Please Me, the early singles, finally number one in America, traveling there, going on the Ed Sullivan Show. I could go on like this. A dozen things from each year, writing and recording absolutely legendary songs, but also all the moments the different periods, the different looks, the mustaches, the long hair, the beards, the Maharishi and the trip to India, Brian Epstein dying, the explosive creativity of Lennon and McCartney and the rise of George Harrison as a songwriter in their league, the White Album recordings, the bed in the studio, the move to individual songwriting, but also collaboration too. And yes, the appearance of Yoko and the gradual breaking apart and then the actual breaking apart. The Beatles stand for something. They represent something. Something that appealed and still appeals to a lot of people. What if you could be creative? What if you were part of a group of creative people who seemingly had it all? Who fit together like four fingers on a hand? Who worked in sync and who inspired one another to be better and to be best, to be artists, to be famous, to be rich, to have it all, and to do it all seemingly in the blink of an eye. And even if you say, well, it wasn't the blink of an eye, 
they worked very hard to get to where they were. You say, my goodness, all of that, and it was over before any of them had turned 30. That's the blink of an eye from where I stand today. Older as I am now than any of them by a long shot when they broke up and still looking up to them in admiration. The Beatles were heroes, and they were instant icons, and then they were legends, and now they're almost mythical creatures. And I'm not going to compare them to Jesus. My goodness, I don't. John tried that, didn't he? I don't want the Southerners to pile up my podcast episodes in a heap and start them all on fire. But we do have an episode coming up with Stephen Mitchell, where he looked at the nativity scene for his new book. The the nativity, as it's set forth, that's the birth of Jesus, for those who don't know, if any of you don't know. The nativity scene as it's set forth in the Bible. And he looks at the very compressed nature of that narrative. It's so compressed. I'll have more about that on Monday. But what it emphasizes, the compression, is how much we've added to the story. A little detail, a line, half a line in the Bible becomes an entire scene in our cultural imagination. We insert little drummer boys and animals and three kings, all based on hints or imagination. There's no room at the inn. We hear, and there's a manger referenced, and we supply more, and we do. We add motives, too. We get hints and brief references, and whole stories spin out of that. And that's what we do with these characters, what we always do with famous people and with stories that are important to us. We add detail so that we can better envision a scene, and we look for reasons and motives so we can make sense of it all. It's part of what we do every day. We tell stories about ourselves and about the world all day long. We are basically a collection of stories All of us, the narratives we use to stitch together our understanding of everything, of how we fit, of who we are and how we fit. We can't live without narratives, fiction and nonfiction both. They define us. And so, when we have an example like Picasso or Mozart or Shakespeare or the Beatles, we supply narratives. These four guys... John, Paul, George, Ringo, how did they do it? How did they get to where they got and what happened when they got there? So much of this is familiar to us and documented, and it's been told and retold a million times by eyewitnesses and onlookers and also by people who weren't there. Go to anything about the Beatles on the internet, any video, any song, and you will find that the commenters there start speculating about things that the commenters really have no idea about. They'll say, well, Paul was jealous because John was a genius and he wasn't. Or George was tired of taking all their crap. He got fed up with being treated like a third wheel all all the time. Or they'll say, Paul was the real genius. Or George Martin was the true genius. He knew music. They didn't, you know, whatever. I hate reading the comments because they're nearly always attempting to explain And they nearly always make the same mistake. They reduce reality to some kind of simple explanation. George Martin was important, but his importance is in addition to everything else. It's not instead of, 
George Harrison's resentment is there, but it's in addition to everything else. It's not instead of. A one-line comment below a video is not going to set forth the truth about any of these things. And nothing, I don't think anything other than possibly the Lennon-McCartney partnership and rivalry and collaboration. Nothing is more discussed than our topic today. The Beatles break up and the reasons for it. Everyone has an opinion. It was Yoko. It was George stretching his wings. It was Alan Klein and the business. It was the death of Brian Epstein, which left them adrift. Paul tried to fill the absence, but this came across to the others as bossy, and they got fed up. Look, all of these have some truth and some merit, and the real answer, of course, obviously, is that there are multiple different reasons and contributing factors. They all played a part, and no one can really say there's one true reason and nobody should pretend otherwise. It's a tangle that won't be untangled. And yet, people do try. They do over and over and over. I have the reason, the secret. If we find a document, a letter, a, a video, an interview, we can make our case. And that's okay, I guess, if you know what you're doing. We're not really talking about history. We're talking about story. We're telling stories the way the old bards did, repeating them in a way that makes sense to us, smoothing down rough edges over time, dropping out details, ascribing motives here and there, sharpening points and definitions, and elaborating upon motives, because not because the reason is particularly important to us, but because the narrative is important to us. It really does not matter to your life or mine if the Beatles broke up because Paul was bossy or Yoko sat on an amp. But maybe we want the story to go a certain way for other reasons. Maybe we need it to be something for some reason. And maybe sometimes when we try to shape a narrative like this, it's destructive. If a star is proudly taking drugs and bragging about how wonderful they are, and then he or she dies of a drug overdose, it might be very important to get the history right. And to be honest about why the death occurred, we might hurt people if we claim otherwise. There might be people who need to know that. Here's an example I just read of a history, a bit of history that was shaped. George Washington, I grew up learning about the wooden teeth he had. I don't know why this is a detail that makes it into all the history books. For some reason, that was a thing. That was significant. George Washington had wooden teeth. School children learn it. We know some of the other myths. He could not tell a lie. He chopped down the cherry tree and so on. I think those have a function. But I don't know why we talk about his wooden teeth. Well, it turns out that's not historically accurate. They were part of a myth, too. He never had wooden teeth. He had different sets of dentures. One set was made from hippopotamus, ivory, brass, and gold. Does that change our view of history? To know, maybe, maybe not so much. It sounds a little more fancy. I suppose wooden teeth sounds a little more plain, but I don't know that it changes things too much to hear that they were made out of ivory. But here's a detail too. He also had a set made from human teeth, which were most likely teeth that had been extracted from slaves. We know from his ledgers he was buying those teeth. Now that changes things, right? A whole new vision 
of what the hell was going on back then with Dennis walking around buying teeth and sometimes buying them cheap below market value, recording that they bought them from slaves. And I would guess sometimes the teeth were just taken. The history is a little foggy, but that's a history that changes things, right? Instead of George Washington having wooden teeth, that he was wearing teeth that had been extracted from the mouths of slaves, maybe for payment, maybe involuntarily. That was something I did not know. I knew that he owned slaves, of course. I did not know that he probably wore their teeth in his mouth. Hmm. Back to the Beatles. Or wait, let's talk about the nativity scene. As I mentioned when I talked about Stephen Mitchell in his new book, a lot of the details are just not there. Mary riding on the back of a donkey. It's possible. It's maybe even probable based on what we know of history, but it's not mentioned in the Bible. She may have walked or gone as part of a caravan. The three kings, we don't know that there were three, and they are not referred to as kings, but as wise men, magi, and on and on. But let's just step back for a moment and pretend that this is a fictional narrative, and we are the authors. What choices do we make, and how might that affect the way the nativity story is read? No room at the inn. Well, that's a great detail, right? Let's keep that. But what next? What if the hotel clerk said, or the innkeeper said, I have no room at the inn, but I will take you to my own home. What would that do to our story? It would show that the the innkeeper was sympathetic, was impressed, maybe even a messenger of God. Maybe the power of who these people were was surrounding them like an aura. That's kind of a nice thought. That the innkeeper would be so struck by who they were and how important they seemed in a holy way that he wanted to take them to his own home. On the other hand, we'd lose a little something from the story, right? If we went down this path, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, as the humble outsiders, the ones who make do, who live in poverty, who come from unlikely origins, we want them in that stable, don't we? Again, I'm not saying that the story is made up or that I'm free to add details or not. I'm pretending it's made up so we can examine the story's narrative power test it. See what we think. What if the innkeeper said there's no room at the inn, and we add to the story that a wealthy man happened to overhear the conversation and said, hey, you three, come and stay at my palace. What kind of a story would we have now? One where our three humble people, including the Son of God, is dependent on the generosity of others. It would change our view of the nativity scene, wouldn't it? Maybe we'd have a lavish palace with marble floors and feel like, yes, this is worthy of the King of the Jews and the Prince of Peace and the Messiah. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'd hear that a hundred servants were waiting, their heads bowed, holding milk and honey, and doves were flying in through the window, and we can imagine a thousand other details that would impress us and awe us at the beauty of the scene. Maybe we would like that, but you know what? I kind of like the manger and the stable, which could have been a cave, by the way. The Bible doesn't say. 
but I like the humble, sturdy, stable, and the manger. I'll stick with that. Jesus being born there is important to the way I view the story. It fits. I like it. And so, with that in mind, that approach, I want to look at the Beatles and their breakup and see what the various theories of why they broke up due to the narrative that's in my mind, and it's in my mind a lot. How these people generated this creativity better as four working together than as four individuals, and why did they break it apart, this gold that they had? Why did they cast it away? And perhaps even more importantly, why did they not get back together? Once they separated and had their chance to do their thing, it was clear they all needed to do that. They all had more music than the Beatles could contain. Even Ringo had songs so ready to go. He was the first one to have hits, actually. And George got his triple album that he had to get out of his system. And John had his Plastic Ono Band album and then his Lost Weekend and his Time to Be a Husband and a Dad. Paul had music pouring out of him, as always. And the three Beatles who were against Paul had time to see that Alan Klein was a charlatan, as Paul warned them, and so on. Why did they not get back in the studio and record an album or two together as the Beatles? They could have recorded one or two albums a year as the Beatles and been very happy, and we might have twice as many Beatles albums as we have. Some potentially very amazing work was lost, which is sad, but we can't dwell on that too much because we could go around saying, well, why don't we have 10 more novels from Tolstoy and a dozen more plays from Shakespeare and so on. There's a lot of what-ifs when it comes to art, but I'm more interested in the nature of creativity for this particular narrative. These guys tapped into an electric current, and they knew it. Why did they give it up? Life is very short. And there's no time for fussing and fighting, my friends. Why could they not work it out? Get Back, the documentary, Peter Jackson documentary that just came out, changed my view on this. I had a bit of an epiphany. So let's do this. Let's walk through the reasons. We thought we knew all this from the Let It Be movie and everything that had come out around that time. This was a band breaking up, sad and gloomy. The studio had become a prison. They were just going through the motions. John was dabbling with heroin, which is not an easy drug to dabble with. And in fact, he was probably in deeper than dabbling. So at times, he was kind of checked out. George and Paul had the famous dispute where George says, Whatever, Paul, I'll play what you want me to play, or I won't play at all. I'll do whatever pleases you. Things were falling apart. That's what we hear in the Let It Be movie. Anyway, Get Back, the new documentary with many more hours to show us their time in the studio, gives us a different picture. They were playing well together. They were playing happy. There was powerful creativity occurring, and it was like magic. Paul pulls Get Back out of the song out of thin air. Paul and John stare at one another, getting the words right, getting the music right, finding the harmonies. There's a moment where John sings a line and Paul is singing at the same time, and John tries something a little different to end the line, a little flourish. And then, 
After he hears how it sounds, he lifts his eyebrows with delight, sharing the moment with Paul, like, hey, that's pretty good, isn't it? That could work. We're cooking now, aren't we, Paul? Sort of like my son. That was the expression it reminded me of, my toddler son eating chocolate ice cream for the first time and looking up at me with his eyes wide, like, oh, that was good. You knew that already, didn't you, Dad? But I want to share this moment with someone. Here we go. Not bad, this chocolate ice cream. Not bad. That sound that you and I just made together, says John. We could put that on a record and be kings once again. But it really forces the question, if things were this good, if the connection was that strong and powerful, why break up? And more than that, if things were this good, why not come back together? They had to feel it in 1972 or 73 or 74. As the years went by, they had to wonder why not go back to where we had this connection? It would still be there for us if we could just tap into it again. What kept them from missing it so much that they didn't want it back? So let's go through the reasons people have given for the breakup and test them against these ideas about why they broke up and why they didn't return. And again, let me emphasize, I'm not trying to say which of these reasons is true or the most true I'm trying to assess what each of these causes do to our story, our understanding, and our use of the narrative. So here are some potential storylines. Let's say we only had one of these stories available to us to focus on. What would each of these storylines mean? Okay, first up, number one. The vacuum of leadership narrative. In this version of our story, the Beatles broke up after Brian Epstein died. He was a great man who truly had their best interests in mind. They trusted him. He took unpleasant tasks off their plate. And perhaps most importantly, he could break ties. We might need a daddy figure, John says, after Brian died. Brian had been that for them. Someone to say, all right, it's all right, boys, it's time for an album. Tell me your, your concerns and what's bothering you, and I'll take care of the problems. And then, after they're all resolved, we'll see you on Monday in the studio. And Brian would say, oh, we need a concert venue for the finale of this film you guys want to do? Well, I'll present you with the best options. I'll rule out the bad ones. I'll take care of the logistics. Without Brian, they had no one to serve in that role. They were doing it themselves, the four of them. And they had no business acumen, so that was a disaster. And they had four creative spirits trying to press forward with their ideas. John was their historical leader, but he was a bit compromised at that point. The drugs didn't help. And Paul was going through one of the greatest creative bursts that anyone has ever had in any walk of life. And Paul was not just a composer and a supremely talented singer and performer. He was the best arranger of the four, and he could hear music the way dogs can hear noises above the spectrum available to humans. He could hear it all. And he was the entertainer, and he loved the band. So he stepped in, stepped in and stepped up. But a democracy, he was filling the vacuum that was left by Brian's death. But a democracy does not always want to cede its power. As a democracy, 
And so what may have seemed to Paul like the natural order of things and the efficient way to do things and the best way to do things and someone had to do it, well, that seemed to the others, especially George, like bossiness. Here's my big brother again. Thanks, George. Condescending, scoffing, knocking me down. Oh, and yes, he's so freaking good, so talented. Who can deny that? But who cares? I gotta be me. There's a lot to this narrative, a lot going for it. It definitely helps explain why they did not get back together. In this view of the storyline, George had grown and did not want to be the little brother any longer. John maybe had some resentment too, the leader of the band who had been usurped. I don't think that's actually true because I think John was strong enough to know that he was better with Paul and he probably would have come around to the idea that he could be a leader again too. Or he had always been the leader, that the two could be co-equals. He'd have been comfortable with that, I think. But historically, I think it's actually pretty likely that George really did not want to record much with Paul again. Let's hold that thought. Let's talk about our narrative. What shape does this vacuum of leadership and Paul's bossiness, what shape does that storyline have and what lessons do we learn? We learn that even the best intentions sometimes don't work out. Paul was trying to keep the band together and ironically, his efforts pushed them apart. In this version of the story, the one who's most devoted is also the most divisive because his good intentions and talent slash genius make him kind of the first among equals, and nobody wants that. You could imagine a story about four business partners or four friends or four brothers where this is the dynamic. And so in this storyline, Paul faces an agonizing choice, push too hard and risk alienating everyone. Sit back and watch things drift apart or spin out of control, lose quality if you don't act enough, or lose the band altogether. And the solution, an outsider, find someone they all respect, a daddy figure, well, that could work, but only if that person is respected and trusted and has their best interests in mind. And what do you do if that person doesn't arise, doesn't appear? Do you see how this works? Do you see what I'm doing here? Not trying to say what happened with the Beatles. I'm talking about what these stories mean to us. You could write a novel with that as your premise. Vacuum of leadership leads creative partners to fall apart. It would work beautifully. Narrative two, moving on. Narrative two is the, well, it was the problem of some of the outsiders. That's the storyline two major candidates. We could blame Alan Klein, who truly was a villainous figure, which they all kind of knew he's a villain. He's a villain, but he's on it. We finally got one of these guys on our side for once. Turns out he, he was a crook, but he wasn't on their side. And he not only ripped off the Beatles, he Iagoed them into distrusting one another. He has a lot to answer for in this story. Yoko is often blamed. This is the most common outsider, fault of the outsider storyline. It started almost immediately. As soon as she showed up, the press was blaming her for getting in the middle of the Beatles, and it has continued really to this day. I hope the Get Back documentary places her in a different light. 
She's not the dour drag that Let It Be made her appear to be. She's there in the studio. She's John's companion. And as Paul puts it, what can you do? They want to be together. Maybe John's going a bit overboard, but he always does. And if we make it us or her, he'll choose her. And that's just the nature of it. It's not really our business. That's Paul in the documentary. You can see him saying that in real time. I don't think Yoko was perfect, either in the studio or in their business meetings or later when she was sort of managing John in his time. There are some eyebrow-raising actions that she took that do make it seem like she had a hard time sharing John with Paul, especially after the breakup. I don't think there's any question about that, but there are a few problems with leaning too hard on Yoko's to blame as our narrative. The first is that it it's just an ugly story. It can turn ugly. It can be, well, she's a foreigner. She's a woman. She messed up a good thing. She didn't let the guys be guys and the bros be bros. Chicks ruin everything. If someone is taking an attitude that strongly, they are likely the sort of person who isn't happily married or who doesn't see the value of a romantic partnership. That's not a great narrative. And with Alan Klein, we might get something similar. It might be, well, the business gets in the way. Well, romantic love and money are two essential elements of being a grown-up. The Beatles wanted to be adults. They didn't want to be coddled children who didn't make any decisions and who didn't live outside of their music. They had to make some choices. But here's the problem with this as a narrative. Again, not historically, I'm not saying what's true and what's not true historically, but the problem as a narrative, the agency is with outsiders. Even historically, you can hear the Beatles chafing at this narrative in real time. They said, sure, Yoko's here, but that's because John wants her here. John is making decisions for John. And I know he called Yoko mother, and she was kind of a replacement for his own mother, Julia, who was taken from him twice. But he was a fighter, a strong figure, as all the Beatles were. And to suggest that an outsider was the sole reason for the breakup is to take away their own determination, their power over their own lives, their own narratives. In a play, there's Iago, but... The play is not called Iago, it's Othello. Othello is the tragic figure. He listens, he acts. We don't say, this is the story of Yoko Ono, or put Alan Klein on a postage stamp. We say, this is the story of the Beatles. They are the architects of their own destiny, including when they listened to other people and made decisions. That's the problem with narrative two. Narrative three, did I tell you there are four? We've got two more to go, and I'm going to give you a fifth. Narrative three, we've already touched on a bit. This was George growing up. George needed more room. He didn't want a couple of songs per album as his quota. He had tens of songs that needed an outlet. Now, the problem with this historically is it doesn't really explain why they couldn't get back together. There's a, well, maybe it does. There's a very easy to imagine alternative universe where George is free to release his own songs on an album 
And he saves up three or four of the best ones to bring in to record with John, Paul, and Ringo every six months or so. Every single George Harrison song you've ever heard would have been better with Paul playing bass and singing harmony. That's just how it is. That's how good Paul was. And George's music could be uneven, but there's no doubt in my mind that John and Paul were ready to make room for more George songs on the Beatles albums going forward. They recognized that something and While My Guitar Gently Weeps and Here Comes the Sun were very worthy. They were going to make room for him if they could keep the band together, and he could have come back. So the only way this narrative works, the narrative of why he didn't come back and seems to have been the most resistant to doing so as the years went on is that he... He didn't really want to be in Paul's shadow. There's power in that narrative. You see it over and over again in history and in life. Little brother needs to be autonomous. How many siblings do you know have this dynamic, some flavor of it? And then there are people in their 40s or 50s or 60s, and when they get together, they go right back into the same family dynamic. Big brother little brother, a 98-year-old big brother might lord it over his 97-year-old little brother. That's just how it goes. The famous clip on the, what is it, the Beatles anthology, I think, where Paul says, we're nine months apart. But you know, when you're a kid, nine months, that's a big deal. And then they cut straight to George, who says, Paul was nine months older than me. He's still nine months older than me. And again, this is a great storyline. It's like a great novel. The younger brother trying to find his way. The older brother maybe never quite giving him enough room. And then they have to deal with a crisis, a funeral, let's say, or a business inheritance or land they have to manage together. Can they reach some kind of working partnership or will resentment always settle in? The big brother says, hey, I just want what's best for my little bro and what's best for us, and I'm not sure he's ready. I think I should probably make the decisions here. And the little brother says, I'm comfortable letting him make the decisions because I don't mind being the little brother, or says, no way. If he can't stop bossing me around, I'm out of here. I got to live. I can't live in this shadow. I got to make my own decisions. So that's a good narrative. That's number three. Number four, we can just get rid of this one quickly. This one says that basically the four of them were exhausted. Beatlemania took such a toll on them, nobody could have handled it forever. We gave the world our nervous systems, George used to say. This was so unprecedented and so manic and so bizarre for human beings to go through something like this, especially all the touring, but also the publicity, the fans, all of that. It was just inevitable that they'd break apart. The stress of being Beatles was more than any four human beings could endure. And this, yes, this helps explain why they broke up, maybe. They clearly were exhausted by then, but then again, it doesn't really explain why they broke. They could have just scaled back. And it doesn't explain why they couldn't come back together a few years down the road after they had rested and the mania had died down. I do like this narrative for one reason. It emphasizes just what a whirlwind they were in. But I don't like the narrative all that much. 
because it doesn't feel historically accurate to me. Once they were out of the spotlight for a while, they could have rested, recovered, and come back rejuvenated. There's no reason why they couldn't have quietly recorded a few albums five years down the road. And I don't know what it does for our narrative that they didn't. Maybe in a fairy tale, you'd say, and they were so exhausted, they went and lived on their own and slept in the rest of their lives. But they didn't do that. They all toured, they all recorded, they all lived with their fame. So it's not such a great narrative for us, I don't think. Which brings me to number five. Number five is actually my favorite, and it actually feeds into all four of the narratives I've already given you. It's sort of like an amplifier, or like one of those ingredients that don't taste like much, but bring out the, the, the richness in all the other flavors. One of the things that's clear in the Get Back documentary is that Michael Lindsay Hogg, the director of Let It Be, is somewhat lost during this process. He's got cameras rolling, but what does he have? What kind of film? And he's pushing hard for this dramatic concert at the end. We'll go to the desert. We'll be on a big ship. We'll go somewhere spectacular. Let nature be the best stage for these four and their concert. This film will be the buildup toward the greatest band playing the greatest concert imaginable. It will be spectacular. And then what happens? Ringo has a deadline. He's got to start shooting the movie The Magic Christian soon. And he doesn't want to go to he doesn't want to go abroad. He vetoes that. George doesn't like the idea of a ship. He thinks that will be expensive. He doesn't want to hang around people for two weeks. And he doesn't even really like the idea of a film at all. John isn't really in a position to whip the others into line. He doesn't really care. He's kind of game for some things, but he's not he's not engaged to a point where they'll look to him and listen to him. Paul cares and sort of sees the point that Michael Lindsay Hogg is making. The film needs a finish. The Beatles always do something new. But Paul is really more of an arranger than a band manager. And as we've discussed already, he needs four votes. That's how they worked. Paul can use his veto power to reject everything else except what he wants. And what he wants seems to be for everyone to be happy, but also for the Beatles to do something worthy of the Beatles and worthy of this film. But vetoing all the alternatives is kind of a passive-aggressive method. It's bound to step on toes. It's the only method he had available to him, based on the way their system was set up. But it was imperfect. He did end up getting the rooftop concert, which turned out to be iconic. And you can see him thrilled when he's up there on the rooftop and he sees the police show up which is something he and Michael Lindsay Hogg had viewed. They said, yeah, if you can't go big, you can kind of go dramatic with the police and all that, shutting down the concert, an element of danger inserted into the show. So they do that. They film the concert and the police and the interviews with the people on the street. And I would say they, they kind of luck into something that turns out to be just as iconic as a big concert someone somewhere else might have been. Who knows, I guess. Maybe that concert would have been spectacular, even better. But it's, it's pretty good, this rooftop concert. But Michael Lindsay Hogg doesn't know that then. He doesn't know that the rooftop concert would be such an accepted, even beloved part of the Beatles lore. He's too blind also to see that Billy Preston stepping in and playing with the Beatles 
giving them a perfect sound for these songs, an addition of soul, beautiful keyboard playing, a really amazing contribution to be able to just step right in. The Beatles spend all this time saying they need a keyboardist at the beginning. You know, what we could really use is someone who can really play the piano. That's what all these songs need. Someone on the keyboards. It would complete them. And so you hear that and you think, well, they're going to call a bunch of people and finally they'll think of Billy Preston and they'll call him and talk him into it. And instead, they don't reach out at all. Billy Preston just stops by to say hello. <laughs> he just walks in the door and they say, oh, have a seat, old friend. How would you like to be on our album? Do you want to play on some of these songs? And he does want to, and he's perfect. And he's he's like he's a musician. He's like Ringo and George in being so talented that he can keep up and contribute, even with tornadoes of genius like John and Paul in the room. Michael Lindsay Hogg misses this. He has something like nine cameras going at the rooftop concert, and he doesn't even have one pointed at Billy Preston. Come on. But the big thing Lindsay Hogg misses, and he later defended himself by saying, well, I only had an hour and a half, not eight hours. The big thing that he misses is that he decided his narrative of his movie, Let It Be, would be, okay, Yoko, Paul's bossiness, the others checking out, and George getting disgruntled and giving up. He doesn't show George quitting. He took that out, but he shows George saying, I'll play what you want me to play or not play at all. He says, and Michael Lindsay Hogg says, there we go. There's the story. Beatles sick of each other. Band breaking up. One last concert on the roof. Farewell world. It didn't really fit what happened historically. The the band got back together to record Abbey Road, for example. And as we now know, thanks to Peter Jackson's film, there were many hours of playing and creativity and, and spark and energy and friendship and amusement and love. Yoko was not this permanent dark cloud over everything. A lot of the time she's just there, and so is Linda, and so is the film crew, and so are others. And the Beatles have their magic to weave with one another just as they had been doing since they were teenagers, finding themselves. Lindsay Hogg forces the narrative into a position. I don't know what I have, he says. Finally, he decides, I know. I have a band sick of each other and breaking up. And that brings me to my fifth narrative. A writer of a story a creator of a story, because this was the story. It's what Lindsay Hogg wanted to tell us. And his, the creator of the story ends up creating the story. He ends up making it come true because the narrative he puts forward is that powerful. So to recap quickly before I get to the conclusion here, if our narrative is Beatlemania, we have a story about the exhaustion of fame and success. If our narrative is about Alan Klein, it's about the destructive power of money and an Iago-like figure poisoning everything. If our narrative is Yoko, 
Then it's Lady Macbeth horn, horning in where she isn't wanted, messing up the four bros. Chicks get in the way. If it's a George narrative, it's the little brother trying to escape the shadow of his big brother. If it's the Brian died narrative, it's Paul trying so hard to fill the power vacuum and the organizational vacuum that he ends up pushing the others away. And historically, there's a case for all those narratives. And to some degree, they probably all combined and contributed to what happened to the Beatles. But here's the one I want to add here today. They didn't get back together because Let It Be, the movie, presented a narrative of why they broke up and they bought into it. The narrative shaped, the narrative of the past shaped the narrative of the future. That's how powerful stories are. The Beatles were seeing the story of the Beatles on the screen, and it changed the way they carried out the aftermath of the Beatles. They were destined to break up. I think that's clear, at least for a while. But if the movie had been Get Back, the Peter Jackson documentary, they might have gotten back together. Maybe we'd have a dozen albums that were made throughout the 70s, Beatles albums. The three main songwriters would save their best and most Beatley songs for their collaborations together. Four John songs, four Paul songs, four George songs, two for Ringo. And they'd have been killer albums. These guys were still writing music at such a high level and they were better together and they would have been better together, but that couldn't happen. It didn't happen because it couldn't. They couldn't do it because Let It Be, the movie, said look at how miserable you guys really were. Look at Yoko getting in the way. Look at Paul who can't stop talking while the rest of you yawn. Paul probably thought, well, look at me trying to drag these guys across the finish line. I'm trying the hardest here, and they resent me for it. And Ringo probably said, well, nobody looks happy, and I want my friends to be happy. And George probably says, my goodness, life gets easier when I don't have Paul telling me what to do all the time, when I can be in charge of what I do and how my music sounds. He's right. Fine. That's George. I'm still in George's mind. Paul's right. Sure. Okay. Can't dispute that. But I can be right in my own way and make my own mistakes and make my own music flawed as it is. And I'd rather do that than be someone else's session musician, sometimes on my own songs. We see all that in Get Back. We see Michael Lindsay Hogg, the filmmaker, struggling for a movie. I don't know what I have. He says, I don't have an ending. I don't have a story. How do you make a movie out of a formless mess? Cameras rolling, an hour and a half movie. How do you make that out of this footage when you have no story? Well, today we say, but you had the footage. It's so compelling. And with the rooftop concert, it's a triumph show the 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 victory of creativity and results over the struggles and the bickering and the pulling apart that happened along the way. That's a movie. That's a story. But that wasn't available to Michael Lindsay Hogg. He didn't see it. What he saw was, oh my goodness, the Beatles are breaking up right before my very eyes and I've got it all on tape. So my narrative is, this is how a band breaks up. And he selected footage to serve that narrative. 
Not the moments of fun, the dancing, the arrival of Billy Preston, the sunshine, the lightning of mood when they get to Apple Studios, the triangles of toast. All that instead, we focus on moments where John seems checked out, when Paul and George seem to be at odds. We take out the deep, almost spiritual connection they had with one another. All of them leave in the bickering, take out the brotherhood. Leave Yoko in there, brooding Yoko, hovering in the shadows. Make her the villain. Ringo said, let it be the movie. There's no joy in it. Michael Lindsay Hogg said, well, we ended Let It Be on the rooftop, so there's that. There's some fun and laughing in there. And Ringo said, well, there was a lot more than what you put in, Michael Lindsay Hogg. Peter Jackson's going to do it. The story of Let It Be created the story of the ending of the Beatles. John Lennon said of Let It Be, quote, the camera work was set up to show Paul and not to show anybody else. And he said, the people that cut it cut it as Paul is God and we're just lying around. It was a movie set up by Paul for Paul. Although John had said he wanted a divorce and both Ringo and George had quit the Beatles at different points, Paul beat them all to the punch with an actual announcement to the public with a press release where he said he was leaving the Beatles and John resented that. He was a genius at PR. John said angrily, he made himself out to be the leader, the star, the essential one, which was ironic because Paul had been the one probably most devoted to the idea of them staying together in the Beatles. But again, look at what this does to the Beatles afterwards. Why didn't they get back together for an album or two a year? Well, in the early years, the film was clearly getting in their way. John resented the film for the way it made Paul look, and George did too. Even the part that they did, the edits they did to try to save George, where they got Michael Lindsay Hogg to cut the part where George quit the band, they talked him out of including that or talked him into not including it, that ended up backfiring because George quitting showed that George had some agency and some autonomy and some power. And if by not showing him quitting, then you open the door to that narrative where Paul is the one who quits and breaks up. You don't break up with me, I break up with you. If the story is Paul tried the hardest and finally gave up, which is how John and George thought the movie looked, well, they didn't think that was accurate, and they thought it made Paul look like the star, and they resented him for it. They weren't in the Beatles to be Paul's backup musicians. The Beatles were four equal points, four sides of a square, all points the same, all sides the same length. The story of Let It Be created the story of what was to come. John in 1970 said, quote, It was hell making the film, Let It Be. Even the biggest Beatle fan couldn't have sat through those six weeks of misery. It was the most miserable session on earth. End quote. Well, that was his recollection after he saw the movie. It wasn't his impression at the time. We see that in the Get Back movie. Once they leave Twickenham and they head to Apple Studios... He was having fun. You can't fake the kind of fun he was having when he was playing. Although the story may have created the story in another way, too. The filming process was clearly interfering, at least for John and George. The process of getting a story in place may have created the story. 
John, again in 1970, said, quote, I just made records with the Beatles like one goes to one's job at nine in the morning. Paul or whoever would say, it's time to make a record. I'd just go in and not think too much about it. Always, I've enjoyed the session. If it's a good session, if we got our rocks off playing, it was fine. If it was a drag, it was a drag. But it had become a job. It was just a dreadful, dreadful feeling. And being filmed all the time like that, I just wanted them to go away. And we'd be there at 8 in the morning. You couldn't make music at 8 in the morning or 10 or whatever it was in a strange place with people filming you. The whole pressure of it finally got to us. So like people do when they're together, they start picking on each other. It was like, it's because you got the tambourine wrong that my whole life is a misery. You know, it became petty. But the manifestations were on each other because we were the only ones we had. End quote. Here's Ringo. Quote, the days were long and it could get boring and Twickenham, location of the movie set, just really wasn't conducive to any great atmosphere. It was just a big barn. We were taking a long time and there were many heated discussions. End quote. Michael Lindsay Hogg said, well, George doesn't like the movie because it shows a tough time in his life when he's trying to get out from under the thumb of Lennon McCartney. Come on. George was 25 when this was being filmed. 25 years old. Look at what he had in his past already. All the years he had left. Years later, when Let It Be was stuck in the vaults, Paul said, well, I'm fine with restoring it and re-releasing it. Why not? The others don't want it to come out, but I don't mind. And I should be the one who's objecting, not them. I don't come off well in the movie. Paul said, I remember once at a meeting to discuss Let It Be, John saying, oh, I get it, he wants a job. And I had said, I suppose that's right, yeah. I think we should work, it would be good for us. They had all been quite happy to have the summer off, and I felt we should do something. As time went by, I'd talked them into Let It Be, then we had terrible arguments. So we'd get the breakup of the Beatles on film instead of what we really wanted. It was probably a better story, a sad story, but there you go. The story of Let It Be created the story of the Beatles, and the reviews about the story didn't help. It's like watching the Albert Hall being dismantled into a block of National Coal Board offices, said the Sunday Telegraph. Paul McCartney chatters incessantly, even when it seems none of the others are listening. The New Yorker said, The movie shows the breaking apart of this reassuring, geometrically perfect, once apparently ageless family of siblings. Uneven, said Leonard Malton, draggy. Variety said it was moody and desultory, a quote, scraggly elegy, end quote. Neil Aspinall, one of the Beatles' roadies, managers, I guess you'd call him, one of the two, along with Mal Evans, who were always there for the Beatles, he said, oh, it's still controversial. A lot of old issues in there. And in 2008, Paul and Ringo didn't want it restored and released. Too dark, they said. Not good to see the Beatles getting on each other's nerves like that. The extra footage shows more squabbles. It's not a good thing for the brand. So where does that leave us? I like this narrative, this understanding that it was the Let It Be movie 
that ended up not only contributing to the break of, of the Beatles, but making it difficult, maybe impossible for them to work again as a foursome. I like it because I'm fascinated by the Beatles and their creativity. And if there's one thing that fascinates me more, the only thing in my life that has the same power and hold over my mind, it's the power of story. How are stories created and shaped? And how do they matter to us and our lives? The Beatles could do anything they wanted. As individuals, they did. As a group, they did for a time. They conquered the world. And then they were conquered. That group conquered by their faults, their conflicts, their needs, and their relationships with others. All of these, I think, could have been conquered by them, and the Beatles could have survived. But there was one thing they couldn't conquer. They couldn't overcome the power of a story. Okay, there we go. That's my story. My story about a story and about stories in general, and I'm sticking to it. My thanks to the Beatles. My goodness, I owe them so much pleasure in life. And my thanks to Mike Palindrome. I owe him quite a bit of pleasure as well, come to think of it. We'll be back with a very special look at a very special story on Monday. Hopefully, can never make too many promises because of all the chaos swirling around. Lots going on in Jack Wilson world these days, but it's all good. Really, I will survive, people. And the episode on Monday is one you're going to want to hear. I'd like to think Thursdays next week should be good, too. And then we have hell and zombies and dragons coming up. Thanks to our friends at Penguin. And our old friend Margot Livesey will be here. And some firsts for the new year and some forgotten women of literature. Yates's Greats is on our list of episodes to tackle and many other good ones as well. So I do hope you will join us for those. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>